Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas. Today is The Stacks Book Club Day. Emma Copley-Eisenberg, author of The Third Rainbow Girl, is back, and we're breaking down Savage Appetites by Rachel Monroe. The book is an examination of women, true crime, and obsession. There are no spoilers on today's discussion, and everything we discuss can be found in the link in the show notes. Be sure to listen to the end of the episode to hear our book club pick for July and tune in next week to find out who our guest will be for that conversation. I promise it's a really good one. If you're looking for a way to amplify the stacks and help me to continue making this podcast, here's what you can do. You can use the link in the show notes to shop for your books. You can subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. You can use the stacks codes with our partners like Libro FM, and you can follow us on social media. If you still want to do more, you can join us over on Patreon. It's a monthly subscription that funds the show and gives you perks like our monthly virtual book club. I want to give a little shout out to some of our most recent members of the stacks pack. Christine Ballo, Corinne Miller, Christine, Holly Ann Walsh, Jeanette Rackle, Brooke Densmore-Williams, Nandini, Marissa Vinning, Mary Ellen Cordick, Gabrielle Jane, Suzanne, Dominique White, Megan Hyde, and Mariah Kofelt. Thank you all so much for your continued support of The Stacks. I honestly could not make the show without you. All right, let's get to it. My conversation with Emma Copley-Eisenberg about Savage Appetites. All right, everybody, I am back again this week with Emma Coffee-Eisenberg, who is the author of The Third Rainbow Girl. Today, for the Stacks Book Club, we are talking about Savage Appetites, Four True Stories of Women, Crime, and Obsession by Rachel Monroe. Emma, welcome back. Thank you. I'm so excited to talk about this book. You picked the book. Well, you sent me a bunch of books to choose from, and I was like, oh, I actually already have that book. Let's do it. And then I read it and thought it was great. So we always start here. What did you think of the book? Absolutely. So I feel like this is the book that I have been waiting for in terms of the conversation about um, gender, violence, true crime, and like the sort of cultural obsession with true crime. I felt like, uh, as we have discussed, my book has like broadly been given the label of true crime and it's a complicated label. And I feel like I wish that Rachel Monroe's book had come out like two years ago so Mm. that I had the benefit of reading it um, two years ago because – uh, I feel like what she has to say is so prescient and important for like our current moment of thinking about crime as criminal justice writing or exploitive or, mm. um, you know, trafficking in the dead girl uh, industrial complex or whatever right. it may be. And I think that um, she's such a good reporter and she's such a good cultural critic. And I'm just like, I I stand. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I came to the book kind of like, uh, I guess I'll read this like because we're going to read it for the show. Mm-hmm. And I, it took me a second to get into it, mm-hmm. but by like the, I think maybe the second section, I was so excited about it. I was mm-hmm. really interested in how and what she had to say and how she was saying it because I think that's some of what makes the book kind of cool is that she's talking about a lot of famous crimes or infamous crimes, yeah. but in this totally different way are people who are not necessarily at the center. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really cool. Um, and I think maybe the reason the first one wasn't as interesting for me mm-hmm. was because I didn't really know the detective. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't really know like that woman and I didn't really know the murders that she was making her little models of. <laughs> but like when it got yeah. to be like 
Manson. I was like, yes, I'm right. interested in Sharon Tate's sister's weird right. stalker friend. Totally. Part, possibly partner. Indeed. It's like a little bit gay. Yeah. I did feel that um, the detective, which, uh, gosh, what is her first name? One of the first medical uh, sort of forensic um, experts who made these amazing tiny like walnut dioramas right. of crimes in order to teach people about um, essentially like what crimes look like and how to solve them. But she calls them the nutshell studies of unexplained death, right. which I love so much. I think for me it was this idea of making – like I think so much of what Rachel Monroe's book about is – so much of what Rachel Monroe's book is about is like this idea of darkness or murder mind right. and like this state of living in um, in darkness and like why do we as people like binge 12 hours of Law & Order SVU back to back like when right. we're sick. Like what is that um, pleasure there? And I feel like the detective lady was fascinating because it's that same pleasure of like literally creating these murdered like nut – shells in your own life right. like the aesthetics of doing that makes no rational sense but serves some like deep pleasure which i feel like she does a good right job well it's like she didn't have law and order to watch so right. she had to like like she had to make her own herself in the world in her own way yeah totally. um so there will be spoilers today but there aren't really spo- actually i take that back there will not be spoilers today because there's not really anything to spoil in this book mm-hmm. but we are going to talk about it in depth so if you haven't read the book and you're worried that you don't want to know anything about it now would be a good time to turn off the episode and come back when you've read the book. But if you're sticking with us, shall we carry on? So the way that the book is kind of set up, it's four sections with a great introduction and a great conclusion. Part one is called The Detective. It's about this woman who kind of was like the mother of modern forensic... Pathology. Yeah. Yeah. And like the study of forensics and the study of crime. Um, and then part two is the victim. And it's about a woman who becomes obsessed with the Sharon Tate Manson murders and positions herself right up next to that Tate family. <laughs> She's just right in their shit. Uh-huh. So part three is about um, the defender and it's about a woman who becomes a pen pal and then future lover of Damien Eccles, who's part of the West Memphis Three, which you would know from Paradise Lost if you're familiar or possibly, I don't know, other ways. And then part four is about the killer and it's about this woman who becomes obsessed with the Columbine killers. And that one is a total what the fuck. What the fuck, I know. We'll we'll get there. Mm -hmm. Let's start off on the easier ones. We'll escalate to... To part four. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that the form of the book was outstanding. Me too. I thought setting it up this way, we know from the subtitle that it's about women, crime, and obsession. And I thought that – I thought like seeing just the headers, it was going to be like, oh, hey, we're going to meet a detective. Like, mm-hmm. We're going to meet a woman who's murdered someone. And it's like not that at all, mm-hmm. which is just cool. For sure. And I feel like it essentially – you know, this idea of like tell the truth but tell it slant. Like she like chooses – it's more about the archetypes of those figures, mm-hmm. right? And then she chooses a case that sort of is an interesting microcosm to look at that archetype. Mm-hmm. I feel like I especially loved the uh, Defender one, this idea of the ways that like um, sort of being like the heroine or being the hmm. um, protector yeah. or being the redeemer becomes like as compulsive a role as murder figure does or detective does. Like this idea of like I will save – this guy really sort of took over the life of this woman, um, Lori, who right, starts out as defense attorney and then ends up like her entire life becomes, you know, ensnared and right. wrapped. Well, no, I don't case. think she ever becomes a defense attorney, does she? As, doesn't she start off being like I feel like she a like wants to. Yeah. yeah. She like wants to go to Fair law enough. school, but then yeah. she's like, oh, I don't know. And she becomes – she like writes to him after seeing Paradise Lost or whatever. She's like, what can I do to like help your defense or something? Right. Yeah. And then they become pen pals and then become like lovers. Married, right. And then they yeah. get married. And it's a wild story. And it's wild that they're still married. Indeed. Like I thought that was kind of crazy because I, I think I think that there's my feeling, I guess my feelings about someone who writes to a stranger who's convicted of a crime and is basically like, I don't think you did it and I want to help you is one thing. And mm-hmm. I think then that escalating into I'm going to devote my entire life to you without ever having met the person I think mm-hmm. is 
so wild. Mm -hmm. Like I don't have any frame of reference for that. So Mm -hmm. learning about her in this book, I was like, I'm having a hard time empathizing with this person because I don't get it. Like, I don't get this. Don't you want to be free? Don't you want to go on a date? Like, don't you want to smooch someone? (laughs) Like, I don't know. In real life, yeah. Yeah, like, don't you want to have a conversation with someone where they can respond to you right away as opposed to waiting for the next letter to come? Don't you want to be able to have a phone call without spending thousands of dollars per call because the prison system is such a fucking nightmare and capitalism such bullshit like i just could not wrap my mind around lori yeah that makes a lot of sense i feel like for whatever reason i like do get it a bit you do i think i do in the sense of like i I think that the author rachel monroe does a really good job of showing how all of this all these archetypes can be like huge projections right. that are usually so linked to the individual person's ego and own struggles mm. and i think that in this particular chapter about um this idea of the defender like lori is someone who it seems like it starts out as a projection like right. let me um like this isn't really about this specific person or this specific case it's about like my sense of wanting to be someone who's on the side of right, who Mm. who saves and brings justice and all of this stuff. And then somewhere along the way, it does seem like something authentic happens between the two of them right? where they start to actually engage as human beings. And so I found that like um, transformation from like the idea that comes out of like this true crime darkness mentality mixing then with the real human like made sense to me in some ways. I think I have had to like check my own like defender like projected instincts Hmm. sometimes like the idea of like wouldn't you want like some people think it's like more romantic to like overcome obstacles or something right and i think there is um this idea of like it's the pleasure and the pain right Mm. the pain of being separated from someone you are super into the pain of um also just like not knowing like maybe he did it you know like right right like there's that um always that sense of like you're skirting around the edges of a really dark um, relationship that like turns some people on. And unfortunately I'm not immune to that. Right. Well, in your book, (laughs) there's that great part where you're talking to the woman investigator who is with, there's another person that comes up in your book that I won't talk about too much, but the person who kind of interviews him in jail. And at the end of the book of your book, she kind of is like, but I did have to ask. And you're like, so there was doubt. Mm -hmm. Cause she's like, I, there's no doubt. I know for sure this person did it. Mm -hmm. And then like that, that always is there. Mm -hmm. Even if you know, or you feel that you know, yeah. you don't really know. You never know. And right. I think that um this person, Lori, this figure in the Defender chapter, like she was like, there's just something about him that absolutely I never questions. But you always get that sense of like part of the like free song, if you will, or like interest comes from like this place of like of me of dwelling in darkness a little bit. Right. It sounds like that was something in her nature, which um I think Partly Monroe's point in this book is like so much of that lives, you know, in all of us. Right. There's another kind of sub part of this section about one of the murdered children. So the crime, the crime is that there's two little boys who are murdered um, and then three young men, maybe they're still boys. I think some of them high school. Yeah. They're like somewhere between 16 and 18, I believe. Yeah. And they are arrested and prosecuted and convicted for this murder and it's all based on this like satanic panic type thing and the guy who ends up getting the harshest sentence is Damien Eccles and he's convicted and sentenced to death yeah and so one of the kind of subplots of this section is about one of the boy's stepfather right who when basically what happens is all these people become obsessed with this case because there's a lot of interesting holes and perhaps they these three boys didn't do it and what they fill some of the holes in with is another person who could have done it which is the stepfather mm-hmm. and it turns out he didn't do it mm-hmm. but that was something that I thought was really interesting too because I think that is such a true crime impulse of people who consume true crime myself included it's mm-hmm. like oh it wasn't Adnan. It had to have been this right. other strange random person that's like totally fringe and I've done all this research and I've been on and subreddits I and I yeah. know yeah. because Adnan was here so he couldn't have killed, you know, and if you don't know Adnan, you don't know true crime. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. That's a serial reference. Um, and I feel like serial is a lot of people's gateway into For true sure. crime yeah. in this like most recent renaissance of true crime. Mm-hmm. I think that 
that is also part of this Lori story is like Lori believes this and she's she's feels confident that Damien had didn't do it and these boys didn't do it. And then how do you kind of reconcile that with, well, then who did it? And it's mm-hmm. like, we have, there can't be a question mark. It has to be either these people or someone else. Yeah. I think like, um, that's part of what I love about the book is like this impulse to solve the crime is not the lens through which Rachel Monroe mm-hmm. is approaching these cases. Like, right. That like an all be gone in the dark kind of situation, Michelle, uh, Michelle McNamara, like, Rachel is sort of one step removed, like looking at those kinds of figures and being like, right, like what is it's a I think she's talking about like that it's an extremely human impulse, yes, to want to know. And like the fact that it's uh, solving the crime is in some ways like uh intrinsic to the this feature of wanting to know, but it's also just it could be anything to some extent. Mm. Like it could be any, sort of any dark question. It doesn't have to be um a murder, but the ways that like so many people who consume this genre relate to it is by this impulse to solve or correct right. or find the truth. And I feel like what's interesting about this book is it it's more so showing and following those people who are doing that rather than trying to do it itself. Right. And this idea of like why um, it, it's a specialness. It's like a way that we can feel connected or alive in our own lives. Is right. the, that's the impulse to, to solve and to know. And I think um, Monroe, the author, is more just like we don't know and we're never going to know. We're never going to know. Yeah. Do you feel like as someone who we talked about this before about your law and order love and obviously (laughs) the work that you've done, do you feel that wanting to know, like, mm, actually let me frame this through myself because I think it's easier for me. I'm going to go the easy way. (laughs) I like true crime kind of in air quotes, but I actually don't like true crime when we don't know who did it. Mm. Like I really like, the psychology of what the fuck happened here. So yeah. I prefer true crime that's about bigger social crimes. So like my my personal favorite thing to read about and talk about is Jonestown because mm-hmm. there's not a lot of questions about what happened yes. or like what how these murders happened. It's a lot of questions about how did we get here. Um, I also I'm really fascinated with Columbine because mm-hmm. Dave Collins' amazing book. Yeah, I love that. Such a good. Yeah. Um, and so like those kind of murders are the things that I think that I'm much more interested in. Mm-hmm. Whereas like the book that you wrote, also this Damien Eccles case, like there's a big question mark. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people who think it's one thing. There's a lot of people who think it's another thing. Mm-hmm. There's probably people who think it's some other thing. Like, I don't know if, if you have any feelings about these two kind of different kinds of true crime. Mm. And I don't, maybe what I like isn't considered true crime because we know. Well, I feel like, I am totally with you in being really interested in that kind of a story. Certainly, um, I actually really loved the Sue Klebold memoir. Oh, I haven't read it. Yeah. A Mother's Reckoning. A Mother's Reckoning. It has a – that title's a little bit – It's something. a lot. Yeah. but And I was like, mm, I don't know. But then I And looked, the cover's also mm, – yeah, it's yeah. not a great package it's to me. not. But I like opened it for a book club that I was doing with some friends and I was really – I was really blown away by her level of insight into mm. – um, actually, I think I came to it from Andrew Solomon's book, Far From the Tree, okay. which is um, about kids that are raised by families from whom they're super different. Mm. And that uh, he Andrew Solomon interviews um, Dylan Klebold's, one of the Columbine Killers' families and says, like, actually, I cannot find the reason here for why mm. Dylan Klebold became you know, who he was. And there's become this like narrative that um, essentially like Eric Harris was the perpetrator and Dylan Klebold right. was uh, was suicidal essentially. Right. And um, Sue's Sue Klebold's book is just about the ways that like she failed as a parent, but also the ways that like our children are sort of unknowable to us mm. at some fundamental level. Right. Which um, I don't think she lets herself off the hook for, but is extremely complicated about what extent she might be responsible and to what extent she might not be. Right. So I found that super fascinating. I also loved, um, so actually Rachel Monroe, the author of this book has, uh, has done a lot of work about Jonestown. There's a really amazing episode of you're wrong about this podcast that Rachel Monroe is a guest on, which Whoa. you should definitely check out. Um, going to check it out. Also going to link to it people. Yeah. <laughs> it's really good and complicated because they do a lot of work about, um, essentially just like how did this happen? And more so about like, um, emotional abuse and cult followings and um, domestic abuse. Like right. it's much more about um, 
right, these like interfam right. questions. I feel like for my book and the stuff I like to read too, it's it's much less about who did it. Like to me, that right. really doesn't matter. That part is kind of boring almost to it me. It is boring. Because it's, it's like, what does this mean? Or like, what is this saying? Which is what makes your book good is it's like, okay, there's some options here, but it's not even really the point. The point is like all the stuff that actually did happen. Yeah. And your book starts with that, like, this is what's true. Yeah. It's like, okay, all this what if stuff is almost not, it doesn't matter. I think, yeah, I think I don't relate to the impulse as much of let me solve it. Sort right. of like the the subreddit and also the um, Michelle McNamara again, right. I'll be gone in the dark. Like I was interested in that book because it is such a portrait of obsession. It's a portrait mm. of someone that, tanks their life and their health in um, pursuit of a very tangible question. Right. And we'll never really know like what drew her to that. Uh, I was troubled by the fact that it's the end of the book is reconstructed, not in her own words. Right. And that feels like it kind of loses the um, thread of this interesting voice. Uh, And so her quest to me is less interesting than the fact that she, you know, essentially like tanked her life over it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We did um, Billy Jensen's book on yeah. the podcast. Yeah. And I was pretty critical of it. I, I yeah. did not love it. Chase Darkness with Chase me. Chase Darkness with me. We yeah. did it uh, October, I think, 2019. Yeah. And I think that like that whole thing, that whole like crime solving thing yeah. is yucky to me. Me too. I don't like it. Yeah. I don't get it and I don't like it. And I think that it's super dangerous. And what we talked about on the book, but happy to talk about for the rest of my life mm. is how reckless it is to think that you can solve a crime and then to like Absolutely. dox people and like yeah. it's just it's so messy and so gross and yeah. I think a lot of it and you never it, know and you that, never know yeah. and a lot of it like the one thing I appreciate about what Billy Jensen does is that he tries to solve murders that are not like pretty white girls yeah so I appreciate that but I also feel like then you're kind of trafficking in in communities that you don't understand yeah and I just, ugh, it just like, it's icky. It was icky to me. Yeah. Complicated because fun fact, Billy Jensen is the one who wrote um, the most comprehensive long form article about the case that my book is about. Oh, wow. Which I read at the very beginning of my hmm. research. And I was kind of like, I'm sure his reporting is good. I'm sure he's a very smart person. But I know for a fact that this narrative of what the murders were and why uh, was so wrong just right. so disregarding of the actual community in the context right so yeah i feel like there's lots of pitfalls with that approach well, right it's like i think that i think maybe what we're both saying it's but i definitely what i'm saying is that what i'm drawn to in true crime is not all the obvious stuff totally and i think that like to me that is what is the least interesting mm-hmm. like the who what where when mm-hmm. of the crime is like, just give me a paragraph. Just tell me what happened. Exactly. And then the how. I guess the why and the how is like not. I guess not how. Not how did the not how did the crime go, but how did this happen? Exactly. Like and, how did we get here? And what is it in human nature and subjectivity that right. allows us to get here? And I feel like this this conversation that we're having, and I feel like so many conversations that um, exist mostly online about like, uh, what does this all mean? How did we get here? Why are we drawn to these kinds of stories? Like Rachel Monroe's book is kind of like, in my opinion, the first like intersectional feminist book right. that's that is about that exact topic. So like, it, I feel like it's just a really important contribution to our understanding of this moment and this time in thinking about um, violence. And for anyone that's interested in criminal justice and stories about violence, like this book feels like a distillation of all these conversations that have been happening right. all around the internet for a long time about like, I don't like these kinds of st- stories. I like these kinds of stories. That isn't interesting to me, but this is an interesting, this is interesting to me, you know, and it's more like a philosophical. Right. Reckoning. It's like cultural criticism about yeah. true crime. And yeah. it's almost like two degrees removed, yeah. right? Like it's not about exactly. the crime and it's not really about like the people surrounding the crime. It's mm-hmm. like about that next Like the people who have like inserted themselves into the crime or into the work. Totally. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. 
That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. The only place for me that I feel like, and I think Rachel Monroe tries, I just don't know if it's, she's fully successful, is like when it comes to talking about like the whiteness. Yeah. Like I think she kind of hints at it in moments and yeah. she acknowledges like this is a white person or like this is a thing that happens because this is a white person, but I feel like she kind of ignores how true crime functions. It's like a whiteness factory. Yeah. yeah. Like that it's like, it's not just that it's like pretty white girls who are killed, but it's like the whole thing is super white. Yeah. <laughs> like the whole, like the whole obsession part of it is super white. And I feel like while she kind of is dancing around that, I don't know that she dives in. And I think mm. that it's like kind of missing for me because I feel like she is so critical and so thoughtful and smart mm -hmm. that it's lacking and I wanted it. Like I wanted to know what she yeah. what she thinks about it. And I know you can't talk about everything in a book, but No, I think that's a great question. And right, I feel like this idea of like um who are the people that are consuming true crime mm -hmm. is inextricably linked to whiteness, but also as like you and many others who I know are like living proof of like, obviously people of color are invested in these same impulses right. and exploring these same questions. And I feel like I want like a companion book to this that is like by a really smart cultural critic of color right. being like, these are what these stories mean to me, or these are all the ways that like, right. Like I feel like we've gotten the debunking of like, exactly like the pretty white girl victim. But I feel like I also want the debunking of like Lori, the l defender lady. And um, like, yeah, I want like a debunking of this book, if this makes sense right. from like a racial a analysis. Yeah. yeah. I feel like those, those would be like super amazing side by side. Yeah. And I hope it's coming. I, think I hope so too. I think that there are uh, writers and critics coming up that are super exciting, including Rachel Ganza, who won the um, Pulitzer for reporting last year. She wrote, this um, amazing piece about Dylan Roof, mm. South, Car yes. South Carolina. In Vulture? I believe it was for um, Esquire. Esquire. I can't remember. I read yeah. it. It was huge and massive. It's huge and massive. It was stunning. I just think her – I think she's probably the most interesting, like, journalist, if you want to call her that, 
it, of our time mm. in the sense that um, and she has a book coming out which I cannot wait to read and no one if you guys are hearing a leaf blower in the background yeah. I apologize it's just it's Los Angeles Thursday <laughs> it's trash day it just happens okay <laughs> trash everywhere yes I just think that um, like her analysis essentially of Dylan Roof's crimes which are super racially motivated right um, and also uh, they're super racially motivated, but they're also exist just in this like larger frame of human violence, but written by this super smart critic. Who's also a black woman. Yeah. I feel like there's just so many more books that need to be written in this vein. And I want them also like live on a shelf of smartness. together. Right. Totally. Totally. I mean, that piece is really good. Uh, and she, yeah, she's just, I cannot wait for her book. I keep emailing her agent being like when is it coming when is it coming she has a book coming yes oh. um it's a book of essays okay. as far as i understand it or a collection of her long form work amazing um, that's gonna be amazing mm-hmm. oh, i love that do you remember what your intro into true crime was like in the vein of my favorite murder which we spoke about last time right like do you have a, a murder in an intro murder i think that again we were talking about last time that um, this idea of Law and Order the show was certainly it in the sense that um, this idea of like the police are trying mm. to do good, right? And like they're willing to like stretch the rules to like right. find the to find the bad guy, bad guy, and like it all. It is a Law and Order, um, like it's a it's a rule following status quo show mm-hmm. in the sense that it follows the um the police and then it follows the prosecution doesn't Mm. follow the defense. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think I came of age in this time when the prosecution narrative Mm. was the right narrative. Right. And the more I have read and thought and existed as like a person in the world who consumes these stories, the more I'm like, what we need is the defense. Right. We need the show about defense attorneys because actually that's the show that's the most relevant now. Right. And I do kind of feel like, um, Hmm. writers like Rachel Gonzo, like also like Rachel Monroe, whose book we're talking about, like have a sort of orientation in the minds of a defense attorney right? in a way that like so many of the stories, um, I don't know how old you are. I'm 32. Like so many of the stories that, um, we were given like sort of around coming of age were like the, the badness can be rooted out and punished right. and then we are done. Right. And it's like, actually I feel like now we are needing and wanting narratives that are like, what if one is not only just wrongly accused, but like, what if, what is even a crime? Like, right. what is even punishment? Like, what are, um, like, who's responsible for this, like, larger reckoning with right. mass incarceration? Like, all of these questions right. um, are in play in ways that uh, I did not think it possible when I was, like, 12. Right. Yeah. Right, right, right. <laughs> totally. Totally. And then maybe, like, as an obsession murder, I think probably Columbine was it. Yeah. In the sense that, you know, I was... I don't remember, 12, 11? 1999, so 20 years ago. Yeah, I was 12. Um, And I remember seeing it on the news, and I remember obviously feeling horror and sadness for those who had died, and I also was like, I'm a weird kid at school who, Hmm. like, is getting bullied, and I have feelings about that too. And, like, this sense of, like, I think I felt – it was them and it was Matthew Shepard. Yeah. Which um, also 1998, I think maybe. Oh, good memory. And again, you're wrong about also does an amazing Matthew Shepard episode, which is about all the ways that like it wasn't really. I mean, it was gay motivated, but it was also like class motivated. Sure. Um, but uh, I think it was Matthew Shepard and it was Columbine being like queerness and weirdness slash um, depression mm. is, are the things that like drive those stories. And I felt like I understand that. I'm going right. through that stuff. Yeah. Right. Yeah, those are big ones for me. I'm yeah. 33, so we're yeah. in the same world. What was yours? I also feel like there was a localish murder, oh. Polly Class. She was her. like a little girl who was had maybe like a sleepover and was abducted, oh. and she was probably like three or four years older than me. Wow. In LA, um, I'm from Northern California, so gotcha. it was in Northern California, it was in yeah. Petaluma or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then also, John Benet Ramsey was yeah. around that time. That mm-hmm. was a big one. Yeah. But I was so young; I just remember being like fascinated by it mm-hmm. and thinking, like, that little girl is weird because look at her like yeah. pageant outfits. Yeah, <laughs> it was like part of it. It and is that, it's like the oversexualization. That was so weird. But yeah. even like as a little girl, I was like, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. That's a lot for another little girl. 
right? You, you know, you're like something about this is wrong. Like something feels wrong and yeah. weird. And I don't know that I knew a lot about it, but since I've become more interested in it. But yeah. then I think Columbine is like Columbine, Jonestown, and Manson are probably like the three big ones of my whole yeah. life that I've been super interested in for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that Rachel Monroe talks about in this book is kind of like why are we obsessed with true crime? It's kind of like an, an early question. And she says, you know, crime is at an all-time low in America. Totally. And yeah. yet true crime is like so major right now. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, like what is that? And I don't know if she answers that question necessarily, but she kind of just throws it out there. Mm-hmm. But I do think that um, one of the things that she does kind of suggest is that true crime is almost like a fairy tale Yeah, it is in our culture right now. And like, not hap- not happily ever after, but kind of like grim, the grim brother brother, like a mythology. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I think that that's right. Like that, there's something about this horrible thing happens, and then the the town and the people, and there's like these archetypes, and there's the the prosecutor and the defense and the judge, and you know, there's the victims and their family, and this whole thing that we almost understand, and that's mm-hmm. why it's like easy to have it on in the background because mm-hmm. it doesn't actually challenge us in any way necessarily unless you have someone like Rachel Monroe or Dave Cullen or whoever's writing these narratives or making, you know, making these programs um, that says that's not exactly right. Right. You know, and like, I think those are the stories that I become obsessed with Mm -hmm. where there's some sort of text or something that I can latch onto where I'm like, someone has a different opinion that actually feels like not a conspiracy, but maybe they've done the research, Mm -hmm. you know? I think too that um, I know that Rachel Monroe's like tagline on Twitter is the Duke of Dark Corners, and mm. I think um, epigraph, yeah, the epigraph is for her mother and gratitude for her dark mind, mm. and I feel like that really speaks to me in the sense of like maybe, and I think um, Monroe's suggesting this that like maybe part of the true crime obsession is like it's human, like we all have these. Um, we all have rage. We all have anger. We all have right. revenge. We all have judgment. And like that uh, true crime provides like an interesting microcosm to examine mm. that material in a way that feels universal. Um, and I think that it's especially I think for like women, queer people, people of color who are like often um, seeing these like uh, sort of objectively smaller but but violence you know, happening right. to, um, at all times that it's like how, like, I want to go and explore my feelings of like, um, oppression, anger, violence, but in a way that like feels bigger than my own experience right. or feels more tangible. Right. And I feel like she does a good job of, um, pulling out like the ways that like emotional truths can feel on par with these kinds of violent truths, even if they're not the same, that that's an, uh, one reason perhaps why like we are like Lori, the defender in this episode or in this chapter, like it has her own feelings of like exclusion, oppression, mm-hmm. wrongful um, sort of judgment of her. And she's able to like essentially like co-opt and take over right. this experience of being literally wrongly convicted for being weird. That's like essentially what happened right. to Damien Eccles. Right. And it's just like so many of these stories I think are just dark environments, like pe- dark Petri dishes for us right. to sort of go in and examine. And I feel like that's, um, definitely like speaks to perhaps my interest more so right. than like who done it yeah right and it's like there it's a safe for us to be yes. in those spaces like it's exactly. allowed for like we're allowed yeah them. yes totally and like the crime con conference right. yeah that's something that i'm not interested in interesting i don't know yeah. if i would want to go to crime con no and i feel like there's this part at the very end like every end I, there's a i feel like it's really hard to stick the ending in a book you mm-hmm. know and i don't know that i always um succeed but i felt like this ending really stuck for me because she talks about going to crime con this like in many ways, it's just like a strange project of like literally the, the um, true crime industrial complex where right. people pay all this money and they right. stay in hotels and it's like a movie or like an expo with like literal like products where you can buy. Right. And it's just like the creepiest parts of um, true crime. And she talks about this like thing that you pay for where women mostly, but anyone can go like go in and they get blindfolded and are like sort of, told um that all these terrible things are happening and the last uh it's essentially the end of this book is like her saying like i don't have to live in this narrative anymore. right like, like i don't have to choose no this. i don't have to choose this and she just says like um my hands were still in the air my arms burning how long was i going to be trapped inside this terrible narrative but i wasn't trapped i was just pretending that i was 
then even though the torture story wasn't over, I lowered my hands and pulled my blindfold off. And I feel like that's like maybe what I appreciate about this book as well is just that it's like sort of saying to us like this is a dark petri dish of our own making and like we can choose how to engage with it. Right. Um, Which sounds like, you know, you do a lot in the kinds of things you choose or or choose not to engage with. Yeah. Okay. We have to talk about part two and part four. Okay, great. Because they're both so freaking crazy. Weird, yes. So part, let's start with part two because it's the less crazy of the two, I mm-hmm. think. Mm-hmm. So if you're not familiar with Charles Manson and the Manson murders, I am. Lucky for you. <laughs> <laughs> I know all about it. It happened in August 1969 <laughs> here in Los Angeles. Um, anyways, this one is about the victim. And while the story is the less crazy of the two, I think what she has to say about victim is the most interesting stuff she talks about in the whole book, in my my opinion. Mm-hmm. But basically, there's a woman who becomes, um, who moves into the pool house of the Cielo Drive house, which is where Sharon Tate and three others were murdered by Charles Manson's followers. Mm-hmm. And then she somehow moves into the big house and she becomes friends with this guy who's like very into Sharon Tate, like birtherism, whatever, <laughs> like he's like a truther. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then she basically gets a hold of these pictures that allow her to leave that guy behind and go directly to the Tate family and kind of be like, I have these pictures of Sharon. I don't know if you've seen them before. Like, I really am interested in her and like, I want to give this to you guys. And she kind of like does a weird, I don't even know. It's a fucking weird, she positions herself in a weird way. And somehow one of Sharon's sisters, her younger sister, like takes her in and they become friends and mm-hmm. and and then this section is all about this woman who's obsessed with Sharon Tate's murder and getting close to the Tate family. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I don't even have words for it. I don't even know what to say about her because I think it's so like it's like she's like a leech of this story. Uh-huh. She becomes like obsessed with it and she wants to like consume it and be close to it. And so so in addition to this, so Sharon Tate's mother becomes kind of a victim's rights advocate. Yeah. And this is happening prior to this woman becoming close to the family. Sharon Tate's mother dies. Then Sharon Tate's sister, who does become close with this woman, she kind of takes on the mantle of this victim advocacy, victim's stuff. Yeah, victim's family stuff. And so that's also going on in this chapter. And that's the stuff that I think is super interesting. But this then... This woman, this, this, I don't know, obsessive woman, Mm -hmm. she then takes on the mantle of being like the mouthpiece of the Tate family eventually. So like she's going on MSNBC and talking about like her family. Like she's like – She's almost like replaced them. Yeah, she's like replaced them and she's the one who's advocating for the family It's like – but she doesn't do it as like a hired publicist. Mm -hmm. She does it as like friend of the family even though she wasn't friend of the family until she made herself friend of the family. Mm-hmm. Like she wasn't their friend in 1969. Mm-hmm. I mean, it- no, for sure. I feel like that one is fascinating <laughs> because it's like, um, I'm very interested in the victims rights movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know again from Rachel Monroe's other work that she's done a lot more writing about victims rights and the ways that it's like, of course, like when you hear the phrase like victims' rights, you're like, that sounds good. Right. right. <laughs> you're like, that's nice. Victims should have rights. But actually it has resulted in like this massive increase in like minimum sentencing mm-hmm. and like just a diminishment of like truth and rights for defendants. Right. And I and that like that sort of strange contradiction of like Sharon Tate obviously died in this horrible fashion and like there's a certain true, like important way that we want to honor that, preserve her memory, et cetera. But then the way it ends up getting co-opted is this way that just like wreaks more harm on everybody, which I feel like is again, this, um, it's sort of, it's a microcosm of the whole book in some ways of just like the ways that we try to like, um, learn can become actually like super harmful. Right. Yeah. Right. And I mean, I think, I mean, I know Rachel Monroe says in the book, kind of our feelings about victim statements says a lot about society as a whole. Mm-hmm. And and for those of you who don't know what like a victim statement is, it's basically when uh, during sentencing, when a family member stands up and says, you know, I'm the mother of Sharon Tate, X, Y, and Z, I feel that these people should be sentenced in this way. Mm-hmm. And they suggest their opinions. And we've seen 
sometimes it can be really harsh and then sometimes it can be really lenient. Mm -hmm. And I myself, as someone who is a very intense rule lover and rule follower, I actually (laughs) hate these because I think that if the law says this is what this punishment is for this crime, Mm -hmm. if that's what we've agreed on, though we don't actually agree, but like if that's what the rule is, I think Mm -hmm. that it's not fair to have someone who's emotionally connected be able to sway what the rule is one way or the other. Mm, Like I think if the crime is sentence five years and then I come up and say, I don't want that person to serve five years Mm. because they stole from my brother or whatever. I don't think that that's any better than me coming and saying, I want that person to be sentenced for 15 years because Mm. they stole from my brother. I think that like that if the government wants to be involved in punishing people, then the government needs to own that. Mm. And if not, then I think, great, we can have a society where we allow you know, family members to punish people, but I don't think you can have it both ways. I don't Mm -hmm. think a judge should be able to say, this is the rule, but also this emotional person who's totally involved and not like in totally biased is going to tell me, and I'm going to take that into account. It's an extremely flawed system. Like I can really hear what you're saying. I think, um, I don't know when you were talking it also just the uh, Stanford yes, uh, rape a thousand case percent. came to mind. And did you read Know My Name? I have not read it yet. That's another one I am interested in reading. I'm interested in too. I've heard it's amazing. Yeah, we'll have to stay in touch and read it. But, okay. I, but I think that um, this idea of like, she, as I understand it, that her victim's rights state or her statement at sentencing was um, a way to be like, I don't know that this will affect the sentence. Like there's in, in a way it's like this other realm apart from legal truth, which is right. like the, um, the emotional damage that right. someone's actions have inflicted as interesting that idea of like, uh, I just feel like we so rarely have actual punishments that are rightly right. fitting the crime. Like right. it's all just like a horrible shit show. Yeah. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I also want to just say that like, most of you know this already, but I'm pretty much anti like all forms of (laughs) extreme punishment for people. But I just think that like you can't expect if you're going to allow bias in, Mm. then what the fuck are we doing here? Mm. You know? And like, if you're not, then you're not. But it's like, it's unfair because in the Stanford rape case, like the judge then can say, well, you know, she said I should be lenient. So I was really lenient. It's like, well, is that really what she said? And also why does it matter what she says if this is the crime and this is the punishment? Like, that's just my... I know. It just feels like, um, like so much of like these kinds of, uh, complicated books, like just teach me over and over again that like, there's like nobody home in the legal system. Right. It's like mom and dad are like out getting drunk <laughs> and like right. we're all just like, fuck, right. what are we doing here? Right. Like assign some sentences. We don't really know. Like it's right. all just like this horrible. It's total, it's this total mess. Yes. And I just think – and it, the other thing in this section that I found super interesting was about like everyone's a victim. And mm. like that's how we kind of got here with these like extreme punishments and yeah. like the, you know, the crime, all the – tough on crime, war on crime, right. racist bullshit is that you potentially could be a victim, Emma, or I could be a victim. Yeah. So no one would care. But like, you know, that that at any moment you are in danger, like just walking down the street. Exactly. And now we've gotten to a place, I mean, I live in LA where there is a huge homelessness problem, but where there's people who are upset with homeless people for being in public spaces. Existing. It's like, wait, yeah. wait, wait, no that's a public space. Like anybody can be in a library. You can't get mad that someone is homeless and they're in the library. Like actually go fuck yourself. But like (laughs) that the idea behind that is like, oh, I'm in danger in the library because this person I don't know. Like it's just, it's spun out so far and it can be justified. You know, it's like the stand your ground is now on this idea of being afraid. Like even men with guns now can be afraid. Right. It's like this fear-based mentality rather than a healing-based mentality of like, um, right. And again, as we've been discussing, like the people that the victims' rights movement is designed for are not the people that are dying uh, as victims of crimes, like in right. proportionate numbers. Like victims' rights is a very like uh, appealing to this idea of like white women are under siege, um, middle class white people are under siege. Like there's right. nothing in it that is designed for like um, people right. on the fringes of uh society who are the most vulnerable to crime. Right. She even says, I think in this section that a third of male, a third of male homicides are by strangers and only 10% of female homicides are by strangers. Yeah. And like, but this idea that a boogeyman is going to come get you and kill you and and you're a poor white woman and what will happen? I mean, not poor, but like, woe is me. Yes. yes, (laughs) Um, I just think it's fascinating. Um, 
the last section, the killer. Oh, gosh, yes. Okay, so this one is about these two young-ish people, 20s, mm-hmm. who are on like 4chan. It's, yeah, I'm really bad at all of the I bet too. It's like, look, <laughs> it's a chat room, Tumblr, I don't know, mm-hmm. some shit. And they're talking about like their obsession with like the aesthetic of Columbine and like Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris as like heroes. Hero, anti-heroes, yeah. sexy figures, yeah. Like sympathetic people and that they become obsessed with them and it's like all these memes about like and like being in love with them and like having crushes on them and the idea of like murderers as as celebrities and then these two people connect Oh, a um, um, young man, a young woman, they connect over it and they decide that they're going to do their own mass shooting in Canada. And it's about like how that happens and then kind of what happens with their attempt to actually like follow through. Because a lot of like these chat rooms are a lot of talk and no mm-hmm. action. And these people are like, no, we're really going to do it. And, right. and you know, the, the guy lives in Canada. The woman's flying there. She, it gets intercepted you know, thankfully. Um, but it's about like the obsession with the kill, like killers. As like um, sort of sexy, interesting, compelling yeah. figures, which we've also seen with like the Ted Bundy documentary sure. that came out recently. I mean, we see it all the time with these murderers. Yeah. I mean, even Charles Manson kind right. of falls in that. Or, and even if it's not necessarily like, oh, I want to have a relationship with that person, there is like a sex appeal about them or like a rock star quality to mm-hmm. them. Like Jim Jones also kind of falls right. and not these cult leaders. Um, David Crash mm-hmm. in the Waco. Oh, He's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah. these like almost religious like figures that people follow and become obsessed with mm-hmm. or just like serial killers that we know so much about them. Like so much information about these people and so little information about the victims mm-hmm. and you know now there's a movement to like not say the killer's names right but even still and i think too there's uh, there's a part that um i think that Monroe does it well in this book and sort of reminding us that like actual evil is really boring yes. like evil is mundane it's sadness mm-hmm. usually it's trauma accrued over many slow years right. you know right. and that um what we're talking about when we talk about these like exciting killer stories is often um, like a very calcified narrative of something that's right. much more boring. And I, I find that like a helpful mm-hmm. reminder, but, and but that like, I find the, the figure of um, Lindsay, like the girl who becomes enmeshed in this case, like really fascinating. And like, I think what they initially bond over is loneliness, right? It's just this feeling of like, I am different. And like, right. we are gravitating towards the figures of the Columbine shooters as outcasts. Right. And there's something about the way like the outcast murder um, figures get uh, collapsed into one. And you're like, well, <laughs> right. there's actually lots of ways to be like a sad outsider right. that don't involve um, obsession with murder. But like, that's it's an easy slide between right. those lines, which I think is a true thing about humans. Yeah. And, and she talks about also like how, it's a way to get notoriety. Yeah. And like that, that these and purpose. Pe- yeah. These people yeah. who become obsessed with these murders feel like, Oh, if I, if I can do this, if I can replicate something like this, then people will know about me and people will care about me and I will have purpose and I will be somebody. Mm-hmm. And I almost feel like when these things happen and people talk about it in that way, I always am like, that's dumb. Nobody's doing it to become, to become somebody. Mm-hmm. And then in reading this, I was like, well, maybe there is some truth to that idea. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. I, I agree with you that I always have this knee jerk reaction of like, no one's that calculated. Right. But it, and it did seem like both of the, I think also like mental illness is important to mention in this chapter, right. like both of these um, people that um, bond and then, Plot this crime together seem extremely suffering from, right. um, you know, a lot of mental illness and whether it's depression or anxiety or bipolar, like we're not really sure, mm-hmm. but, uh, and obviously like many, many folks suffering from those illnesses do not plot murders, but it seems like there's something in this idea of like notoriety that also has to do with like feeling, um, lost and like mm-hmm. self-hatred and the sense of just like, what am I? why am I alive? Like mm-hmm. there's a, there's a suicidality that like comes 
back around. And that's like sort of been the narrative with, as we were discussing, like with Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris is like, Eric Harris was a murderer and Dylan Klebold was a depressive. Right. That's like been this the sort of new telling. And I think that um, this chapter complicates that a little bit because both of the people who are plotting this crime seem actually quite actively interested in, in harm and harm right, other people. Right. Um, and again, it's just like that both end of like you're suffering, you want this way out. And also like maybe your evil is real. Right. Right. Yeah. The other part of this that she does mention, which I thought I would have read a whole another chapter on it. And maybe mm. this will be in our conversation book that, mm. that Rachel Gonzo will write for us. Yes. But she talks about how the Virginia tech shooter is yeah. like one of the only ones who doesn't have a huge following on these like message boards and stuff. And for those of you who don't know, he was um, Asian. And so the question is like, I mean, it's not even really a question. The answer is there's a reason why. And it's because he's not white mm-hmm. and like that there's a lot of like white supremacy wrapped up in these mass shootings. Yeah. Which I think is like talked about a lot, um, uh, at least on in my sphere on Twitter. And like I think it's talked a little bit about on like mainstream media when these events happen that it's like it's always, almost always straight, white, cis men. Dudes. Uh-huh. Like it's not – we're not getting a bunch of like, I don't know, queer women or or – you know, Latino men or like, you know, there are some, there are a handful of people who break the mold, but like overwhelmingly, this is a sickness that afflicts. Maybe it's not even a sickness. I shouldn't say that because it's not, it, I mean, it's, it, it is, but it's not like, it's something that is a deliberate action by white men almost exclusively. And sometimes other people, you know, dabble in it. But I think that like the glorification of it also appears to be yeah a, a very white thing. Yes. I think that that's, like 100% true and like I wonder if it also has to do with this idea of projection which is like so much trafficked on this book it's like again like who can we um what stories feel like open for the taking Mm. by like the masses and I feel like I wonder if like um again her talking about whiteness as um the driving force for so much of consumption of these cases Mm -hmm. that like there is like a a projection barrier there between like um, your average like true crime obsessed like white right. lady and a person of color who's doing these crimes like yeah I think that the the Virginia Tech murder had so much racism in its coverage of mm-hmm. the murders too in the sense of like he was depicted as um, yeah like a, a sort of maniacal and, right. and kind of like he was pathologized in a way that I feel like um, certainly like the Columbine killers were given a lot more humanity yeah yeah and they and weirdly they were given a lot of edits, I felt like. Yeah. Like when it all first started, Columbine was a totally different story than the story we now tell about Columbine. It's true. Which is probably correct. Like the story that we're telling now is probably more accurate, but just the idea that you get a rewrite. You get to revise, yeah. Like so many, so many of these things, there is no revision. It's like whatever the narrative was is the narrative. And I think a lot mm-hmm. of that probably is attributed to Dave Collins' book. Yeah. Because I think that was like a huge thing that people talked about and read and mm-hmm. you know pay attention to but that idea that you even get a second a second chance mm. as like a mass killer is yeah. is can only ever have been afforded to white men like that's not happening for sure i love to that, anybody the idea else. that like who gets to have their story revised and complicated yeah whereas who gets their story just told one time right in a shitty way. and everyone moves on mm-hmm. um i think unless there's anything else is there anything else you want to talk about from this book? I mean, I, I was interested. I, I reread the New York Times review um, before I came over here and mm-hmm. it was like talking about – it was ex- it was extremely positive but the only like dig that the writer got in was about um, Rachel Monroe including her own sort of story, like her mm. own um, frame narrative onto it. And I was kind of wondering what you thought about that. I feel like, again, I'm always interested in – mixing forms and I'm always interested in people making apparent their own mm-hmm. um, interest in the subject matter. But what did you think about the more like memory parts? I didn't think it needed it. Really? I yeah. don't think – I don't – unlike in your book where I feel like there's there's a lot of parts of your book that are new information for mm-hmm. me as a reader. Like I didn't know anything about West Virginia. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know that I would have understood why – you, a person from New York who lives in Philadelphia, was interested in this story if I didn't know a little bit more about you in mm. the book. I don't feel like what she was talking about needed her. Mm, interesting. It didn't take away necessarily, but I don't know that it added a layer that I that I needed. Yeah. Because it felt like the added layer was the people that she was putting in 
conversation with the crimes. I feel like it's interesting though, because she's sort of of the demographic that we're, that are supposed to be consuming this hook, line mm-hmm. and sinker, you mm-hmm, know, as mm-hmm, like a, mm-hmm. um, white lady and, you know, sort of, of like marriageable age. Right. Sure. <laughs> sure. Um, and I think the, the, um, criticism of crime con and like, like putting one's own body in this environment up against all these other people who are consuming the genre in a uncomplicated way. Mm-hmm. It was, it was a helpful, like sort of, um, entryway into the book of like, I should like this and mm-hmm. I do in some ways. And also like, I feel bad about it. Right. That was kind of like an interesting framing to me. And I always wonder, I think it often is like a criticism that gets leveled at women of like, why do you have to put yourself in the book? Right. And you're like, well, I too am a person. <laughs> right. Right. Agreed. And I feel like also women often ha- feel like they have to put themselves in the book so that they can be taken seriously. Interesting. Right. Like that they're not an authority that. on this subject right. unless they explain why they are. Right. Like where men will be like, I'm going to write about this random thing that I know nothing like about. And people it. are like, yeah. wow, the expert on. Mm-hmm. And you're like, what do you mean? <laughs> um, so yeah, I just... I I usually I'm like one of those people that thinks every movie should be 90 minutes and every book should be like 100 pages because I'm just like one of those people. And so I often feel like when I am evaluating a book, I'm like, oh, was did we need this? And so like I don't know that it took away from the book, but I don't know that it added value where I feel like your existence in your book added value because Mm -hmm. of your experience in the place. Like if you were like, oh, I lived in this other part of West Virginia that's totally unrelated, I would be like, okay, we don't need this. But like you were like, I'm in this county, like driving on this road. Right. So I'm like, oh, okay, I get it. Fair enough. I love the idea of um, books all being like 100 pages. Like I wonder if we could create like a list of like top 10 books that you can read in like an afternoon. And I actually am very into this idea of like slender books these days. Yeah. I I feel like most novels could be 100 pages short. I think – I really think like 200 pages for a novel is – like that's it. Like if yeah. you're over 250, you've really got to have me. I'm fatigued. Nonfiction, <laughs> I can do more. Mm-hmm. But fiction, I mean, listeners know that I, I'm not wild about fiction anyways. But mm-hmm. um, but if it's like – if it's three something, you've got to be – you got to be doing something major. Earned it. Yeah, because uh, otherwise I'm like yes. got to go. Sorry. Very fair. I like <laughs> – I, yeah, I feel like especially from like other writers, I'm like there's no need for this. There's just like – a, there's a sense of like um, prestige in writing a like doorstopper book sometimes that I'm like, this yeah. is constructed. But I don't need all that. Okay. I, you could have done it earlier. You could have <laughs> done it quicker. You could have done less of it, whatever it is. Um, okay. Last thing we always talk about is the title and the cover. Mm. So the title is Savage Appetites for True Stories of Women, Crime, and Obsession. Um, and then on the cover, it's like a dark cover and there's a doll that has been murdered and covered in blood on the ground. And <laughs> it's one of the nut, the nut dolls. Yes. What do you think? I love this idea of appetite that's in the title. This idea, again, it's, um, there, there's, there's some sort of explicating and exploring of what that word is and why it's important in the book of just this idea of hunger. I feel like hunger is a thing that we don't have control over. It's like mm. this sort of longing or this, um, way that we want to just like literally eat and consume mm-hmm. things like for our own survival or for our own expansion or whatever. Right. So I like this idea. I, I like the title a lot, Savage Appetites. I know from my own um, subtitle mm. uh, journey that the subtitle can be a battle and is often more so about like marketing right. and what they want. Um, I see like oftentimes I could do without a subtitle on uh, books like this. I feel like as this one goes um, – I'm fine with it. I feel like Savage Appetites is really the star. Yeah. And the subtitle, you're like, Agreed. sure. I like that it says Women, Crime, and Obsession because I feel like that is definitely the book. Yeah. Like it feels like Obsession it's the book. Is a helpful word. Yeah. yeah. And I think even in the book, there's a part where she mentions those three words together in mm-hmm. a sentence. So it feels like the subtitle doesn't feel like it was put upon her. Agree. Like That's it felt fair. like organic to the book, which I liked. Mm-hmm. Um, the cover I like, but it's not really... I, I was, I don't know that it would make me pick up the book. Mm-hmm. Once I opened it and I saw that it was like part of those like dioramas. Right. I was like, oh, okay, it makes sense. But I don't know if the cover like did anything major for me. Fair enough. I think that um, it's like because the, it doesn't look like a real person. Right. Which I find useful. Like the, um, it's clearly like a doll with like this like warped hand and it looks old and looks kind of like fucked up right in this way that I, like if it was like a stylized like dead lady in the cover i'd be like oh god absolutely not right but there's something about the fact that it's a doll and it's a um it just looks 
old. Yeah. And it looks like a little bit off in this yeah. way that I, I feel like I'm drawn to true crime stories that are a little bit off rather yeah, than yeah, yeah. that like sort of like, as we know, like perfect right. dead lady on the covers. That's a good point. So I was kind of just like, interesting. What is off about this? I'm intrigued. But also like creepy dolls, not for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> Acquired taste. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I think that's it for today. Mm-hmm. Emma, thank you so much for being here. Mm, what a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And we will see you guys in the stacks. Thank you all so much for listening. And thank you to Emma Copley-Eisenberg for being our guest. Our July pick for the Stacks Book Club is Breathe by Imani Perry. We will discuss this book on July 29th. Be sure to tune in next week to find out who our guest will be for the discussion. Find everything we talked about on today's show in the link in the show notes. For more from the Stacks, follow us on social media at the Stacks Pod on Instagram and at the Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out the website, thestackspodcast.com. To join the Stacks Pack and help support this show, go to patreon.com slash the Stacks. Make sure you're subscribed to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please rate and review this show. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite and our theme music is from Tagirajis. This show was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. <laughs>